Hello everybody and welcome to this new episode. My name is Sarah and this is Amsterdamus, the podcast that introduces you to amazing women from Amsterdam. We all live in the same worlds, but at the same time, we don't. We might call a certain place or a certain community our home, but at the same time, it can be an entirely different universe from the life other people are living. Some communities, religious or not, actively isolate their members. Sometimes it is the civil society that is responsible for the exclusion of an individual or a certain group of people. Dina Perla-Portnar has experienced isolation and exclusion herself when she grew up. And she knows that today in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, many people and many groups still have to face exclusion. And she knows that most of us also play an active role in that, whether we are aware of it or not. Welcome, Dina Perla-Portnar. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much, Sarah. Wonderful to be here. I understand that you have your own experience when it comes to living in a community that isolates its members and that isolated you. Would you like to share this experience with us? Yeah, sure. So I grew up ne near Museumplein, very central in Amsterdam, so the Museum District of Amsterdam, and I still live here. Um, and although it's a very civil, open free neighborhood and also a good neighborhood, a very safe neighborhood. I grew up in a ultra-Orthodox Jewish community after the Second World War. So I'm from 85, 1985. And uh, this me meant that I had different rules, because um, my family members made me be isolated. So they kept me isolated from the civil society, from other people. I also went to a Orthodox school in Amsterdam called Geider. It's the only Orthodox school that we have in the Netherlands. And back then it was even more Orthodox than it is now. So I lived in a completely different bubble you know, in comparison to people my age, to other children from my neighborhood. Although I was trying to be in touch with everybody, trying to push to still connect with others around me and with, also with my, you know, the, the, the children that lived in my neighborhood. I always loved people. I always loved diversity and inclusivity already back then. But yeah, it was a different life. And nowadays we know a lot about the phenomenon of phenomenon called coercion. We know more about so-called harmful traditional practices and those played a big role in my life. So that means coercion in different ways, uh, mental, physical, also things that have absolutely nothing to do with the religion, but a lot of things that had to do with the religion as well, including dogmas and brainwash. And again, a lot and a lot of rules and how, you know, ways, plans for my life, how I should run my life and um, things that I couldn't do 
a whole list of things that I couldn't do. So my life wasn't my own. Um, and this was, yeah, this was a big thing. This was really a big thing. So we have communities from all sorts of flavors, not just Jewish, of course. You name it, Hindu, Islamic, Christian. A lot of people know the Christian communities most uh, and are many flavors. The Amish community, the Mennonites, the Mormons, you name them. And uh, Jehovah, of course, is a big one that people know of. So those communities live literally amongst us not just somewhere behind walls, you know, or in a ghetto or far away, in our streets, in our neighborhoods. Yet again, they are very far away from us. And there's a big division. And nowadays, um, it's even more a division based on different rules. So on moral mismatches, if you will. So yeah, so that was my fundament. And I broke free. I always mention that the first 18 years of my life were similar to the Shawshank Redemption, uh, a movie in which somebody ends up in jail uh, but is innocent and digs his way out of it for 17 whole years, literally, you know, cent piece by cent piece. And it was literally how I digged my way out of where I started. And I started a life, built a life literally from a minus thousands. And yeah. It's it's um, it's a, a, a fundament that not a whole lot of people share with me, and it has made me much stronger. But it has also taken away uh, many things long term, and that is exactly what my work is about. That um, a lot of things that happen are not just impactful in the moment themselves, as in a lot of uh, personal suffering and all of that. While, for example, growing up in a certain community. It has long-term effects. Uh, in my case, I don't have children because of that. I'm not sure if it's the final, 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 you know, end result. But most realistically speaking, it might be. And that is very existential. So a lot of things that happen when you, when you are born in such a community have nothing to do with the moment itself. Of course, there's all of that self-determination in all sorts of ways, especially as a woman, as a young girl uh, growing up um, and with a lot of expectations. But it has transgenerational patterns, trauma and impact. You know, it can impact many, many lives. Um, and yeah, that's that's the starting point. Could you please explain the mindset or how it felt? You call it a parallel universe because you lived in Amsterdam you lived in a modern city and you saw it when you left your home or when you left school but then at the same time you were probably taught that these things were not kosher so how do I have to picture that existing in a world but not really being a part of it yeah it's um, a, a whole process as in you know when I when I talk about uh, liberation, the Shawshank Redemption as a movie, as an example, it was literally like that. You know, step by step by step. When you're born into something, into a family, you have no idea what is normal, what is not. And as a child, you're always very loyal, no matter what. This also goes for just regular families in which you know a violence exists or what have you. 
So there is no reference point. And uh, a lot of things were very beautiful and very valuable and still are. And, you know, a lot of basic principles in religion have a lot of value. And I think we also tend to forget about that nowadays. You know, in some ways we're out of balance and we're out of touch when it comes to meaning, when it comes to looking for God, uh, what it means. And that is not, you know, very a big problem. It's not um, something to be ashamed of. It's not something to be worried about. That's not, not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is how coercion literally has a lot of impacts and why I believe that we should break open closed up communities to keep those children safe because they are born into it. They have no choice. They have no way of comparison. Step by step, they they will. Um, for example, if I talk about my story, I was five years old when I already knew that I was feeling, you know, suffocated, that it wasn't my real me. And I had no words for it back then. But now I would use the word fraudulent, as in all the long skirts and the, the colors that I couldn't wear and that I had to wear and the, the many, many rules on a daily basis. A lot of things in there, I didn't feel as if they truly belonged to me. And I felt that, me, you know, my my inner voice, my inner guidance, my compass, however you want to call it, was repressed. And I had no way of explaining what it exactly was. And the only thing that I have ever wanted in my life was just living with integrity, according to what I would call nowadays my own blueprint. That's the only thing. I mean, I have attended the school, Geider, uh, the Orthodox school, and I have been, you know, in 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 groups of of of, of girls in which um, some girls were extremely rebellious, and after school they went an entirely different direction. They were very rebellious. They did drugs. They partied. They, you know, they literally went loose. And for me, that wasn't what it was all about. I just wanted to be true to who I am and to what is good for me and to what I feel is true and is good and is my truth. That's the only thing that I ever wanted. I wanted freedom, freedom to not have to be scattered, to not have to be violated all the time, uh, literally also physically, uh, to not have my my integrity jeopardized um and you know that's that's what happened to me and you know we can go over a whole lot of details on um uh, what that looked like i mean you know a lot of things that i couldn't do and that i did do and media that i um had to secretly um you know look into or books that are read in a library or that i went to shops to find information or at some point that i had two different neighbors that helped me a lot and gave me a lot of information about many subjects in life and also were there whenever i had the possibility to flee the violence and was bleeding and and in trauma and they literally picked me up and and were there for me and like you said i was still under influence of the beginnings of my life i did not question for example to eat uh, not kosher um and um uh, you know looking back i had the opportunity to eat with my neighbors and i never did and had i done that I would have probably been much more healthy longer term 
But in the moment itself, I was still in that system and I still did not discover, you know, wrong from bad. And I just wanted to do everything right and just, you know, do the bare minimum for what felt to me that was, you know, right for my life. But instead, I wasn't allowed to um, also uh, uh, have safety in, in, in literally every single way. And a lot of things had no absolutely no background in religion um, that makes my story even more complicated because there's a lot of narcissism and sadism that I went through and that part is not something that I talk about very publicly often but you can understand that when you have both and it usually is both look at all the Islamic families for example and I know that because I work with them you see that it has both. It has the harmful traditional practices that are uh, literally uh, fed by ideology. And it has the other things, the mental things and the poverty and, you know, all these layers of problems on top of each other. And it enforces each other. So, yeah, everything that you know from partner violence and from coercion in the broader sense is what I experienced as a child. Um, I was sent to uh, the U.S. at some point to Crown Heights, uh, the very ultra-Orthodox neighborhood in New York. Um, and I was supposed to uh, not come back to the Netherlands to lose the little bit of support that I had. And you have to understand as a child, you don't have any financial means, you have no diplomas, you have nothing, basically. And I, I had just a couple of people that were there for me and that supported. Um, and I also had to lose my studies. So I was going for FIVIO, which is, um, you know, high school and exam until you're 18, about 18 years old. Let's let's put it this way. It's There are three, or back then there were three different degrees. This was, let's say, the highest degree. And it was a degree uh, with, you know, which could helped me to go to a university, which I always also wanted to do. Um, and when I was in New York, I was brainwashed. I was coerced into letting my boyfriends go. And I didn't. And in the end, I came back to the Netherlands and we fought our battle together, um, like Romeo and Juliet, and we got married. We were together for 18 years, and that's how I, I built my life. But basically, every single thing that was normal for a child to grow up with, so homework, uh, friends, parties, toys, playing, all of that, um, and then as a teenager, different things, I had that but very limited. And I made sure to give it to myself. So I was the parent and not a child. You know, the, the, the older I get, the more I understand that my fundament is very different from other, you know, from other fundaments that people have. But, and this is a very big remark, two things, actually two remarks in this context. And first of all, it's, you know, I'm, I'm very clear on what happened, both positive and negative. And it's not one big, dark, you know, hole that I crawled out of. And that's the inner work that you do at some point. And I did a lot of inner work. I still do. I have a whole journey of forgiveness behind me. And I can see everything the way it was. Not colored, not selected, not from a traumatizing perspective, 
everything clearly, everything the way it is, and very balanced. And, you know, there were a lot of good things in there, a lot of good things. And the second remark, big remark that I want to make, especially for the Netherlands, um, is that when we hear about people that have such fundaments or starts in, you know, starting points in life, or when we hear about any sorts of difficult topics, people that have not lived at the surface level, but really have gone through a whole lot, we tend to think that because they have been through X, Y, Z, that there must be something wrong with them. Especially people that talk about these subjects publicly. And I think this is a scandal. It's unforgivable. And it's something that we should change. Talking about inclusion, talking about moving forward. In the US, it's really, really different. In the US, people value you know, personal growth much more, personal stories, personal journeys, how people went from the dark to the light, how activism, whistleblowing, speaking up culture. In the US, we have you know, a better climate for these sorts of topics and these sorts of aspects in society. And I know this because long term, uh, I wrote uh, two books and one of which was uh, an autobiography about the first 20 years of my life. And I did a lot of different, uh, well, I did a lot around that book, you know, speaking engagements, uh, events, lobbying, what have you. There's even a, a movie made on the back of the book uh, the book is called Exodus out the Future, Exodus from the Lighthouse, and the, the movie production is called um, Exodus, uh, Exodus uh, the Afvallige, so the Apostle. So it's it's it had an impact, and it's important. It's very very important to look into these stories, and everything that I did was coming from a fundament of strength, not trauma, and this is something that people in general, in society, don't get. Um, and it bothers me a lot because it is because I am that damn strong that I'm able to do this work. And it's because I choose to turn everything around into good for society, whether people like it or not. It's necessary for two reasons, one of which is change in the here and now, and we need that, no explanation needed. And the second thing is her story instead of history. Always this aspect of history for centuries. It's his art, his voice, his science, his whatever. No, there were very strong women in there with her story. And this is such an important aspect because we are completely overruled by history. So basically everything that I did including all the bad journalism interviews that I gave, you know, with people that actually don't understand what I was doing. I did it for two reasons. Change in the here and now, imprints in society, in her story. With, let's say, the cherry on top of the cake, you know, on top of everything, with the whipped cream and all, um, that my uh, books and my work were archived by the Amsterdam City Archives. And in that process, I got no uh, by um, some Jewish institutional cancellation policies. Let's put it this way, in a vague manner. And I understood that I had to 
make sure to work my way out of it, uh, you know, around it and how important it is. Because if somebody is going to research the post-Second World War and then the Jewish community here locally, in my case, Amsterdam, and if my work is not there, then it's literally erasing me out of history. It's taking away my voice, my life, my manifest, everything that I did. Or if somebody is going to frame it in such a way that it's, you know, literally um, corruption and fraud when it comes to history. And I don't want either of those two aspects. So I made sure to work my way around it with the Amsterdam City Archives as my partner in crime and a couple of other scientific researchers that I participated in, including one important research that was funded by the European Union, specifically to investigate the lives of women that left closed-up communities in the Netherlands and in the UK, in England. Um, So a lot of work has been done around this story. Again, I find it unforgivable and unacceptable that people think that you should be a woo-woo, cuckoo person. Something is wrong with you when you talk about these vulnerable stories and, you know, vulnerable subjects. And the second thing, you know, that that we don't evaluate um, these sort of her stories. And the second thing is also, you know, that we should uh, learn from these sort of things. And that these sorts of stories have nothing to do with the branding and insta-perfect era that we live in. Who are the people in the Netherlands that are currently facing isolation or exclusion from your point of view? Well, it's everybody. You name it. And also when you talk about the political spectrum, right, left, above, below, through, whatever, (laughs) you know, politics is an issue um, because politics tend to not connect, but to oppose and to cause a whole lot of integrity issues. So everybody, we are all included in the exclusion, every single group out there in society. However, you know, talking about my own group, let's say the starting point of my life, because at the moment I'm not sure whether, for example, I want to be socially and culturally Jewish. But, you know, talking about my people in a context for just for this this context, there's one thing going on in the Netherlands that I find, again, unacceptable and unforgiving. And that is that we have very little Jewish schools in the Netherlands. Basically, we have Geider, the Orthodox school that I attended, and we have Mamonides and Rospina uh, for, let's say, a bit more liberal kind of students. These schools are still being secured by professionals, you know, from the Ministry of Justice and um, Safety and in collaboration with the, you know, the, the places that those schools are in, in this case, Buitenveldert in Amsterdam, there are no schools in the rest of the Netherlands that have these sorts of security measures because they have to. To me, it is crippling to know that there are children, yes, also my people, my background, but children in general that have to go to school with professionals from the military and so on to protect them. 
in this day and age. And religious schools are a big topic and a very complex topic, topic that we could talk about during an entire podcast. So it's a very complicated topic. The, you know, the big question is whether we should want um, these sorts of schools the way they are nowadays in this day and age and whether the safety of children is being prioritized or not. It's, it's a big topic. But the parents from those children will say to me, yes, but if I were to send my Orthodox children to a regular public school, they were to be bullied like you wouldn't believe. And let's be real here. It's true. It's true. We are not safe. We're nowhere near the scenario of having, you know, a black hat sitting next to a jellaba, sitting next to a skinhead in school classes without being, you know, tortured. And that's the reality. And that's the same, you know, in our business world, in working life, et cetera, et cetera. There are problems everywhere. So, you know, it worries me. And when these parents would... I mean, if those parents would say something, you know, like that to me and, and say, but yeah, hey, our children wouldn't be safe in public schools. I would have to say it's I, I would have no response to that because it's true, because it's literally true. Um, again, that there are children in this day and age in the Netherlands, especially in Amsterdam, which used to be a city for freethinkers with tolerance and open-mindedness and all of that for centuries, for centuries, that there are children going to schools where security is needed the way that it is needed. It's, it, it, it's mind-blowing and it's really unacceptable. And this is, again, it's not something just for our governmental bodies to look into. It's something that everybody should be aware of and should think, okay, and what does it mean for me? How do I treat other people? Am I safe with others? Can I disagree with somebody completely, but be okay still, just because it's another human being? This is such an easy concept, but in reality, it's one of the hardest. And this is something that we need to to look into in you know in the coming period and um, even coming eras. Another thing is that there are a lot of movements going on for all sorts of apologies and you know healing and mea, you know mea culpa in the in the broader sense. And I completely get it, and I'm very happy that it's finally happening. You know, from witches that were killed for no reasons to the, you know, the black community to you name them. And we know because we we are in the midst of everything that is going on Um, and racism and discrimination still exists and it's not gone and it's sneaky. It's under the surface. Oftentimes, you know, sometimes it's very direct, but oftentimes it's under the surface, especially in working life. But when, when we're starting to heal, we need a different consciousness from, the, from which we work. So we're not going to play a whole other Machiavelli kind of power game to reverse what happens in history and to oppress now 
you know, to oppress back. And that is something that I'm very worried about, that we're moving towards that sort of uh, power play. You just gave us the example of witches. Could you please talk a bit more about certain areas, fields, communities where especially women are excluded in Amsterdam or in the Netherlands? Well, the more religious or orthodox a community is, the more there is a shadow side when it comes to women's rights. And it doesn't matter what the flavor is. So basically every sort of religious environment comes with risks. Um, and that is why, you know, very orthodox environments can be a problem, a really big problem. Now, it's not to say that we should generalize everybody and um, that it's a problem everywhere. I mean, there is definitely uh, something such as an evolution that we can find where, for example, thinking about the Jewish orthodoxy, where you will have women that still tend to live according to the orthodox rules, but in a more, more modern way. So they would dress in a certain way while still keeping those modesty rules, um, but being more modern. Uh, there are many ways, you know, in which people live that way. Um, and what is really important is that we should have and keep a place, thinking of Amsterdam, in which people can live and let live. Now, criticizing orthodoxy for the sake of criticizing is just stupidity. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is if somebody investigates life and looks for God and find truth in this way of living and chooses to live this way completely wholeheartedly, you know, as an individual, then there is no problem. However, it becomes a problem when children are born into it in a certain matrix, communal matrix, you know, in which things are expected from them, in which they are directed in a certain way to uh, live a life, you know, according to certain limitation and rules and are even coerced into it. And we know from each and every community what the impact actually is as we speak. The Netherlands is doing a big research, is conducting a big research to uh, see whether it's possible to formulate new laws so that people that left close-up communities and that are shunned for life get the support that they need. Um, also thinking of myself, you know, back then I left and... Um, Nowadays, I'm okay and I can talk to people that are still living in that community, etc. But I had nothing and nobody and there were no organizations back then that, you know, provided the right support and so on and so forth. And thinking of, you know, as socio-psychological point of perspective, the what happens to human being when leaving a close-up community is 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 very hard to say the least and the more isolated such a human being was the more he or she needs to caught up with everything in regular society 
you know, without housing, without um, uh, support system, networks, education, um, everything. I know, for example, from certain cults like Scientology, for example, one of the first things that they do is disconnect new members from the people that they know, for example, like friends or families, or it could be the same example with like an abusive relationship where the partner says like, I don't want you to see Sarah anymore. She's a bad influence on you and I don't want that. If the person is already in a situation like that, and we have a listener now who maybe knows someone who is in that situation, how can they still help? How is it possible to still reach that person somehow? Well, this is really a big topic at the moment in the Netherlands, especially thinking of certain communities, uh, for example, the Jehovah community. As we speak, the uh, Ministry of Justice and Safety is looking into putting together some new regulations, some new laws around all of this. So they are conducting a big research to understand better what happens when somebody leaves a closed-up community and is shunned and what the impact is long-term also, not just short-term. Um, so they have, uh, you know, people uh, conducting many, many, many interviews from all sorts of backgrounds and so on. And when I left, there was almost nothing. So I had to do everything by myself. And the organization that we have nowadays did not exist. Uh, both the civil organizations, for example, in the Netherlands, there's one called Veilig uh, Thuis, but also, um, you know, certain specific organizations that deal with specific communities. So, for instance, you might have seen a couple of Netflix productions called One of Us or An Orthodox or My An Orthodox Life. Those organizations uh, or those, sorry, uh, productions also show what sort of organizations exist for specifically for the Jewish community. So there is uh, footsteps, you know, there are organizations in Israel that are very specialized. And what these organizations do is literally take somebody who never left the close-up community by their hands and take them step by step, you know, take them into that whole process, uh, both practical, uh, practically speaking, as well as uh, psychologically speaking and so on. Um, so, for example, you know, people that left the Orthodox community, they go to such an organization, they talk to others that have left and they share experiences, they get new clothes, they get, get some stuff to, you know, to live with, um, things that they need in the moment, uh, they can breathe for a while, they can heal, they can start thinking, okay, what do I need? in society, they can uh, learn about the internet, all of these things, things that are so normal for us to think um, that it exists and it's part of our lives, etc. For these people, it's not. Um, so there's a big catch up that they need to do uh, to be able to, you know, to, to, to get ready for real, you know, open, civil, free society as we know it. Um, so long story short, in the Netherlands, there are more organizations that will help nowadays. Um, so that's already better, but we still have a long way to go. And let's be extremely clear here, especially when it comes to uh, somebody who leaves a close-up community because of uh, trauma and because of coercion, uh, all sorts of coercion, you know, um, whether it would be sexual violence or what have you, th these people need extra support. And a lot of things 
they don't have in that community and um, you know not being able to stay in touch with your own children or being blackmailed or what have you things that really happen all of these things are part of you know human rights breaching human rights so it's important that we do something about it these communities that we've talked about they are of course and I'm making air quotes here, extreme cases. But we also have examples of exclusion in society, in our daily life. That could be racism, that could be sexism, that could be certain groups of people not having access to education. That is a totally normal thing to other people, for example. From your perspective, is there anything that we as individuals can do about that to to fix that? Or is this just a structural problem in the Netherlands, in the society? There is absolutely something that we all should do and we should never, never tolerate all of this. So zero tolerance. And we should go, uh, you know, aim for total, deliber uh, total liberation of everybody. Again, everybody is included in the issue of exclusion. So we all share that. Um, there's a recent research done by the United Nations, and it's a research done internationally. And it talks about how we all, not just men, but all of us, view the role of women in society. And the outcomes are horrible. As in, men deserve better jobs than women. Women, uh, you know, and abortion, it's not uh, just something that they should uh, be able to uh, decide on. Another uh, outcome is that, um, you know, hitting women might even still be allowed. It's horrible, horrible, horrible the way we, we, we still look at women. So I think it is important to have zero tolerance everywhere saying that if there is racism discrimination sexism it doesn't matter what ism that we should never rest until all of this is gone and um, one of the things that we could do to get there is to have better conversations and to really listen to each other so for example if i think about the business world and it's a world that i really know well or working life in general I know a lot of organizations have a diversity and inclusivity expert, you know, a representative in the organization, usually from a different background. And that person should be able to stimulate uh, diversity and inclusivity and all of that. So there are different programs that, uh, you know, the representative will um, present to the organization and much more. Now, in itself, I understand all of this. And I think that we have made some progress because these diversity and inclusivity experts have given us a stage to present ourselves much better, to be ourselves at work, to show the fullness of who we are, whatever our diversity uh, would entail. Um, and that is very good. And there is progress because we all understand that we need to do something to get uh, some more justice and equality in place and so on. 
And that's basically what we all want. We want justice. We want to be seen. We want to be accepted. We want to be heard. That's basically the era that we are in. We all are longing for justice. We are all longing for, you know, for some healing. But the reality is that these departments and these representatives oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes come along with new problems. So, for example, they would have a program to uh, stimulate diversity and inclusivity and it would not work. And then, you know, the leaders would say, uh, but we gave you everything that you want and still it does not work. We invested in this and it does not show. And, you know, what what is left and do we need to focus on, you know, the business wins only. And so there are many issues. And in itself, having a diversity and inclusivity department or representative is basically creating a us versus them kind of structure within an organization. It brings some new problems. Another thing that reality shows, um, and trust me, I know, I worked in the business world for 18 years. I've seen it from up close, is that, for example, let's say the diversity and inclusivity representative is a Moroccan person. That's just just an example. What oftentimes happens is that he or she will pull up as in take on board his or her own people and, you know, stimulate the favor around their own people. Now, I completely understand this stage and I completely understand why sometimes that is necessary. But to be honest, it's not sustainable. It brings along new problems and it has nothing to do with the true meaning of diversity and inclusivity, right? It's still another process along the way. It's still a selection of some sorts. And then you get the, uh, you know, the, the, the coin, the other side of the coin, um, as in power structures that shift and that exclude others. In reality, it is not, it is not inclusive. So what is the best solution for this long term? How I see it is the following. I've been learning for years now a lot, a lot, a lot about prevention and integrity management. And I I can see how we all share a lot of gray areas. And everything that we are and what we, you know, where we come from, how we think, you know, a whole lot of things are taken into account when we try to deal with these gray areas. So the moral dilemmas. The thing is, first of all, we, a lot of people that have had very easy lives and did not grow up in a close-up community and did have all the privilege and safety and security and all of that, still don't know who they truly are. So they don't live according to their own blueprint. Uh, or they don't want to discover it because it's uh, it's too risky because you know what's going to be at the end of that research it, you know life might you know move around a lot so basically a lot of people don't live with integrity themselves according to their own who they truly are so if individuals within organizations have that problem and do not live with integrity how can we expect that the outer will reflect back, you know, an integer as in a whole kind of environment in which the match is is aligned in a in a great manner. 
It doesn't. And what would happen in reality is that organizations would have codes of conduct and certain values and a certain way of recruiting people. And maybe the leaders would uh, uh, believe that they uh, would need to show some exemplifying behavior, which they often do not do, and they are often part of the big problem. So usually there are certain things in place. And, you know, especially young people start a career, they come into an organization, they say, yeah, I, I totally agree with those code of conduct. I agree with the values because they're quite generic. You know, it doesn't say anything and they, they then they come into the daily uh, reality of that ecosystem and what starts to happen is that first of all they don't know who they are or they don't want to investigate who they are and really live with integrity and second when they do they often experience moral wounding because there is a mismatch so what is important is that people will live with integrity and work with integrity first, and then also train how they think of different manners and think deeply and critically, etc., so that they would be able to train moral dilemmas, those gray areas, right? If this would happen, X, Y, Z, what would I do? And the moral dilemma is not, I got a present uh, from from a client and it's about 500 euro. What do I do? You know, it's this kind of stupid training that, uh, you know, that, that organizations will just have in place as a check in a box. It doesn't work that way. Moral dilemmas are about choices in the moment, daily choices that people have to make, about relationships, the complexity of relationships, about intentions, attitude, behavior in the moment, about the complexity of what it means to value something from a moral point of perspective. What is morals? What are morals? What is um, what are you know? What is the domain of ethics and integrity? It means that also if we're talking about justice, that just has different stages and different layers and different aspects you know that will differ for everybody some people find pillar one and two of justice much more important than pillar three or four you know everything is tailor-made so what i see is that if people know much more about who they are how they would react when such a gray area would occur what is important for them in relation to themselves, in relation to others, and much more. And if you were to put these people together and do moral deliberation, you would be able to hear back, to get a lot of information for all, from all these you know, people in teams, not the, 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 the leaders. I don't care about the leaders. We need the leaders, but they are very, very privileged. They have enough executive coaching and what have you. And they're oftentimes part of the problem. No literally the working men and women within the teams, if those people would start to have real conversations and listen to each other, really listen, we don't listen. We never listen. And they would hear back why they would make certain choices and why not. And then in the end, all of these moral deliberations would be recorded and uh, would be analyzed and shared with everybody you know, transparency. And we would be able to learn from everybody and from all those uh, different perspectives without judging what is 
diverse and what is inclusive. No, this is truly a way to um, enhance diversity and inclusivity because all these team members will bring everything that they are to the table, but it won't overrule another person. And it is really about the content. It is not about, I need to fight more for my group um, because we have centuries of slavery and I need to perform some Machiavelli kind of power play here to uh, manipulate the outcome. No, it's not about that. And it's not about judging in the moment what answer from which team member is better than the others. It is really about opening up ourselves, about bringing everything that we have to the table, but without overruling others, about non-judgment first, and about you know being able to analyze, and then in a democratic, collaborative approach, know what the best outcome is. And I think that principle is a principle that we should have in all areas of our society, whether it would be politics or our mentality. I mean, we are great at, okay, this is a law, so there's a punishment when I breach this law, X, Y, Z can be the consequences. Whereas I think our mindset should be not about, are we breaching laws? It's more about, are we doing the best? Are we inspiring others? Are we bringing our best self to do the best that we can from a moral point of perspective? And can we learn? Can we do better when we know better? I mean, we will make mistakes and mistakes are allowed. It is fine to make mistakes and to forgive each other, but it's about an evolution, about learning, about jurisprudence, as we call it, as this, you know, this is a, literally the word that we use to indicate how we can learn from all those moral deliberations and, and, and how we can analyze those and do better. And this entire way of working is much more sustainable and much more constructive, much more democratic and so on when it comes to diversity and inclusivity. This is actually a tool for true diversity and inclusivity. How can people support you and your work? You'll find me online. Uh, of course, there are the books. Um, I also have a new initiative to talk about all of these subjects called deintegritytalks.substack.com. So feel free to join my tribe. Um, and there's also the website, theintegritytalks.com, and people can find all sorts of information. They can, you know, ask me for an inspirational, you know, motivational uh, speaking slot or for uh, coaching or for consultancy, what have you. Dina Perla-Portnar, thank you very much and good luck with everything. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much for tuning in and for supporting this podcast. If you want to support Amsterdamus even more, there are several options to do so. You can check out the Amsterdamus Facebook page and leave a review. Depending on which podcast app you are using to listen to this podcast, you can also rate Amsterdamus there with a five-star review. In Apple Podcasts, for example, it is possible. Of course, you can also follow Amsterdamus on Instagram. In case you would like to give me some feedback, or you know a person that needs to be interviewed for this podcast, you can send me an email. The email address is amsterdamuspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again and have a great day.